Well, where do you find refuge? Where do you go for safety and protection? So for centuries, nations and peoples have used certain locations as refuges, places for safe haven, right? So you might think of Masada in ancient Israel, that gigantic fortress rising out of the desert on which the Jews held off the Romans around 70 AD. Masada means strong foundation or support in Hebrew, and as such, it provided refuge. That is, until the enemy was too great to withstand. In the Civil War, one famous fortress was Fort Sumter, which uh, me and my wife have been fortunate, fortunate enough to visit. Built to house 650 soldiers and 135 artillery pieces. Sumter guarded the important harbor of Charleston, South Carolina during the Civil War and was strategic during that conflict. In the Cold War era, a refuge was built near us in the mountains of Pennsylvania, which is a little over an hour from here, with the purpose of providing safety in the event of a nuclear attack. It's still there today, still operational, called Site R, or the Raven Rock Mountain Complex. Its nickname was the Underground Pentagon, built as a refuge under the mountain, a fortress to provide safety. For most of us, however, we're not regularly concerned about an impending military offensive against Northern Virginia. Yet each one of us still finds ourselves yearning, longing for refuge in our lives, for safety, for protection. King David was no different. So in the passage Daryl just read for us from Psalm 62, David pours out his heart and announces to himself and to others where his refuge lies. For him, even as he is assaulted by real military enemies, he has found his fortress, his rock, not primarily in a fort or in a mountain, but in the Lord his God. So throughout his life, David had many opportunities to fear enemies. We're not sure exactly where Psalm 62 falls on his personal timeline of those struggles. I, I tend to think it was probably when his son Absalom rallied against him and tried to take away his throne. But we're not sure. Whatever the case, we find David here in this 62nd Psalm coming to the Lord in desperate need. Look at verse 3. He's addressing his enemies and he says, how long, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence. They only plan to trust him, thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Can you hear the weariness, the, the worn nature in David's voice? And yet even in his suffering, we see in this psalm just his beautiful, rock-solid trust in his God. So dear church family, I think this is a great psalm to meditate on as we prepare for another year. Because we come to 2020 in great need of refuge. Each of us knows our need, if we're honest, better than we did a year ago at this time. We understand our weakness better than we did a year ago at this time. Each of us knows better our need for safe haven, for refuge. 
Where will we find it? Well, church family, in this psalm, let's, let's just take one simple big idea that you can see mostly on the coins in your wallet, if you still carry coins. Just take one big idea and we'll break it down as we work through this text. And that is that in God alone, we trust. In God alone, we trust. So let's walk through that together. And let's first start with those first two words. In God alone, we trust. In God. See, throughout this psalm, David paints for us a vivid portrait of who he himself believes God to be. And so for us, as we think through this psalm, it'll be important to consider not merely our trust in God, but also the very trustworthiness of that God. So look with me at verse one. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. David has 20-20 vision. I had to get that in somewhere, right? 20-20 vision, crystal clear clarity about who God is. He knows that from God will come his salvation. He knows God is his deliverer. He knows God is his rock. He knows God is his foundation. That picture of a rock is repeated elsewhere in the psalm. So, for example, Psalm 18. David is rejoicing in God's deliverance of him from King Saul, one of his earliest enemies. And he says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. It's like he's pulled out his Hebrew thesaurus from his bookshelf and started just listing as many synonyms as possible to show how steadfast the strength of his God is. And I think particularly poignant is that picture of a rock. I mean, we all kind of understand that, that picture. You think of, I, don't, I, I try to think of like the most famous rocks, right? El Capitan in Yosemite. Ayers Rock in Australia, which is now closed to climbing, if you heard that latest news. The Rock of Gibraltar at the entry of the Mediterranean Sea. These rocks are symbols of enduring stability and power. They're solid. They're immovable. And here David takes that sort of picture, that sort of imagery that we can all understand, and he ascribes those very same traits even more gloriously to God. God is solid. God is enduring. God is powerful. Look at verse 7. David mostly repeats verses 1 and 2 in verses 5 and 6, but he adds on a bit more in verse 7. He says, On God rests my salvation and my glory. He says, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. He's saying all of my hope sits squarely on the character of who God is. And then in verse 11, we see a beautiful description of who God is. He says, David says, once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For David, God is worthy of trust because he is powerful. Power belongs to him. He is the owner of power. Think about church, though. If that's where we stopped, if we kind of stopped there after verse 11... 
we would certainly be worthy or see God worthy of our fear, wouldn't we? We would know that all power would belong to him. But, but would he be worthy of our trust if we stopped at verse 11? If we knew God was the most infinite being in the universe, that nothing could stop him, but we knew nothing else of his nature, wouldn't we have great cause for anxiety? Not confidence? I mean, what would the God like that do to us? That's why it's so important to look ahead to verse 12 and keep reading. As David continues and says, And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Powerful love. God is powerful, yes, beyond all creation, and yet inexplicably to us, amazingly, incredibly, his power is directed towards us in mercy. God's power is merciful and his mercy is powerful. That's the God David trusts. This is the rock he has built his confidence on, even in the midst of his fear and concern in God alone, he trusts. So with that vision of God, let's look at the next word in our big idea. In God, alone we trust. Alone. This is a key word in Psalm 62, whether it's translated alone or only or truly in your Bibles. Look with me at verse 1. David says, for God alone my soul waits in silence. Then verse 2, he Alone is my rock and my fortress. Verse 5, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Verse 6, he only is my rock. Charles Spurgeon, the great British pastor of the 1800s, called Psalm 62 the only psalm. (laughs) Of course, there are 149 others. You get what he's saying. The psalm that highlights the exclusivity of God as the ultimate worthy recipient of trust alone it's not that we can't trust other people or things a healthy marriage is built on trust between a man and a wife a healthy workplace cultivates trust between employer and employee you exercise trust when you sat down on that chair this morning and had faith it wouldn't buckle beneath you so we trust we can trust in a lot of things but this psalm is is speaking of most basic trust ultimate hope and that must always only alone be in god in fact if we try to split that trust try to kind of spread our eggs into more than one basket we'll show we don't really trust god at all so one author says it this way and he's he's an old-timer author so his words you have to think about them they trust god not at all who trust him not alone They trust God not at all who trust him not alone. He's saying that those who who say they trust God but try to share the love, kind of share that ultimate trust with, with other things, other people, really don't trust God at all. And so it's important for us to bring out this word in our big idea this morning, that in God alone we trust because I think for us, for many of us, if we're honest, we're happy to trust God. I mean, we're in church this morning. Trust is a good word when it comes to God. We're, we're happy to go to our friend in prayer, to seek out the wisdom of his word, even now. But when it comes to trusting him alone, we can get a little nervous at times. 
I mean, we've been trained to consider it unwise to not have other options. Recourse, fallbacks, safety nets. It just seems rash to just put everything on one thing. But David says our trust must be in God alone. He says no other safety nets. So, dear friend, dear Christian, I wonder as you evaluate your life, your faith in Christ going into 2020, where would be the places you would diagnose your own soul as being most tempted to run for refuge other than God? Now, what other rocks are you inclined to rest on? I mean, David gives us a great place to start in verse 9. Do you see that? He says, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increased, set not your heart on them. So David starts right where a lot of us don't want him to. With wealth and riches. He says the strength of man is a delusion. And he focuses in on our desire to find hope, this deluded desire to find refuge in money. It's a temptation common to everyone in this room. In one way or another. We fret over job security, savings, spending, social position because of our wealth, retirement plans, investment. All fine things to ponder and seek to manage wisely and godly, in godly ways. All terrible things to place our ultimate trust in. I love the story Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12, the, the parable of the rich man. And we could go to a lot of modern day parables of people who have placed their, their hope on wealth and uh, seen it totally evaporate. But this story is the best thing you can get. It's a striking one. Uh, if you want to turn to it, it's Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 15. 15. And Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Friend, Jesus talked about money constantly. Because he knew it's one of the best ways we can try to control our lives apart from him. Perhaps the best way. So... Christian, is, is money one of the things competing with God as a refuge for your soul? Again, incredibly 
wise and recommended by scripture to be thinking about money going into 2020. How to best save it, steward it, and give it. But is it your refuge for your soul? Christian, don't trust in riches. Do you see all the men and women who exploited and extorted and robbed and stockpiled over the centuries? Do you see them now? They're dead. What good did it do them? I love how one author puts it. Riches are like a stream, which soon flows to a person and may also soon flow away. So that where one had first to pass with a boat over the stream, he may in a short while be able to cross by a step and by and by to walk over with dry feet. He's saying what Jesus says. Riches are not steadfast. Riches do not last. Riches are not refuges. Perhaps for you, you are tempted to find refuge in another place. So perhaps for you, it's harder to trust in God alone when it comes not necessarily to money, but to relationships. So you're perhaps tempted to find your ultimate refuge in a harmonious marriage or in healthy children or in minimal conflict on Christmas when extended family gets together, right? And when those relationships are assaulted, you're shaken to your very core because your rock has been shaken. Maybe you're different. So maybe you're tempted to find your refuge, not necessarily in money or relationships, but in achievement and reputation. Climbing the ladder in your workplace or in academia. Perhaps you think as long as you have the best behaved children, the best legacy to leave behind, you'll be content to die. That's your refuge. Or maybe you just like to find your refuge in the here and now. Trying to forget the anxieties of the future and the depression that has come in the past and just focus on now. You know, YOLO. You only live once. Live it up. Take adventures. Try new things. Perhaps you're, you're happy finding your ultimate refuge in relaxation, in your, in your physical home. Maybe your home is your fortress, your place where you try to get away from it all and distract yourself with sleep or, or food or pleasure. And again, friends, many of these so-called refuges are not terrible things. Indeed, many of them are good gifts from God you must exercise in praise to him. But all of them are terrible replacements for God. They are totally unworthy of your ultimate trust. In God alone we trust. In him alone we must find refuge. All other things that we've just mentioned and whatever else you could fill in the blank with will, will fall beneath our weight like loose stones cascading down a mountainside. Only one rock stands. And that rock alone is worthy of trust. And that's where we end this morning. In God alone we trust. David's trust is seen all throughout this psalm, isn't it? So in verse 1, he says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. For David, trust looked like waiting for God. Not skeptical waiting, not whiny waiting, not bickering waiting, waiting. Quiet Silent waiting. 
At the end of verse 2, in light of who God is, David says, I shall not be greatly shaken. See, he's, he's not so confident in his own power or his own skill to prevent destruction to him. He's built on the rock. And since he sees that this rock cannot be shaken, he knows neither can he be shaken. Down in verse 6, I love this. Down in verse 6, he repeats basically the same words, but you see he leaves one word out. He says, I shall not be shaken. What word's missing? No more greatly. I think here David's probably showing how his faith is growing even in the midst of hardship. In verse 1, David describes God as the one for whom he waits. But then in verse 5, so in verse 1, he describes it, right? He's like, for God, my soul, my soul waits in silence. But then in verse 5, he changes it up again. He addresses his soul directly this time and says, for God alone, oh, my soul, direct address to his own soul. Wait in silence. He speaks directly to himself and commands his soul to be quiet. To wait on the Lord. Doesn't that sound familiar? Christian, haven't you experienced that? That that struggle of knowing you should trust, knowing you have, you, you just, this is how you're going to survive. You're going to trust in God and yet seeing every single reason in the world in your circumstances not to. David says an example for us here is he doesn't merely listen to his anxieties, but he speaks to them educating them with the character of God. I love how I'm quoting Spurgeon a lot because he's great on the Psalms. Spurgeon says, faith can hear the footsteps of coming salvation because she has learned to be silent. Isn't that beautiful? He says, from God comes my salvation and I'm silent so I can hear the footsteps of his salvation come. In his book on spiritual disciplines, Don Whitney includes the disciplines of silence and solitude as things each Christian should nurture in his or her life. Time for reflection, not time with the the phone buzzing, not time to check email or, or listen to a podcast or turn on the TV or even do some productive things like chores or balancing the, the checkbook, but time to sit in silence, to meditate to really confront what you're afraid of, full in the face, not avoid it, and then educate that with the truth about God as our refuge. Dear Christian, when was the last time you scheduled time into your calendar for silence and solitude with God? David David is is learning how God uses trials and suffering to reveal to us where we find our trust, right? Our refuge. If you're wondering where you find refuge, think about that the next time suffering comes. You'll see it clearly. And David's learning that these trials from God to test your refuge are good mercies. So I think this is the last Spurgeon quote, but I think it's the best Spurgeon quote I've ever heard. So I'll use it one more time. He says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. He's saying the things that cause him anxiety, cause him to try to find his refuge in the rock and God, those trials turn out to be blessings to him. 
because they turn him to the only unshakable one. Christian, have you learned that lesson? Are you learning it? (laughs) If you've known Jesus for more than a year, you've already begun to because it's the way God works in his mercy. And in the midst of suffering, Jesus promises he will never leave you nor forsake you, that he will always be present, God with us, that he will always love you. Preach that to yourself in good times and in bad, like David does here in Psalm 62. Look with me at verse 8 then. I love this too. David has, has spoken to different people, right? So he started by, by speaking kind of the, the facts about his, his hope, and then he speaks directly to his enemies, how long. And then he speaks to his own soul. But here in verse 8, he goes to the people who are worshiping God along with him. And he says to them, trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. He's turning to the people around him. He's saying, do you see this God that we're talking about, that we're singing about, that we're praising? Trust him. I'm learning. Can can you learn with me? Pour out your hearts before him. Pouring out your hearts. What takes more trust than that? Right? You don't pour out your deepest, innermost thoughts to just anyone, do you? It needs to be someone you can trust. Someone you know won't hurt you for being vulnerable, for being yourself. Christian, pouring out your heart to God in prayer is one of the most profound, meaningful ways you can show your trust in him in 2020. We sang about it earlier, right? Are you weak and heavy laden? Cumbered with a load of care? I know some of you are this morning. Precious Savior still are what? Refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Christian, can you say with David, God is a refuge for me? Well, if you can say that, then what do you need to pour out to him this morning? This afternoon, this week? Where are the anxieties and fears you're trying to handle on your own and failing miserably at? Take them to the refuge in prayer. And church, David's example here is a good reminder for us as a church family. David is learning how to trust in the midst of suffering. And as he learns, he doesn't keep it to himself. He shares it with those around him. He calls those around him to worship God and trust God with him, along with him. It's a good model for us. Have you done that recently? So, so I trust that for all of us who are in Christ, God is teaching us in his way as we surrender to him more and more about our Savior. And part of being a body of Christ as a local church, members joined together as Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, we are to share this spiritual health and growth with one another. Right? We're a body. And so one of the best ways you can serve this church, sure, serve the church, sure, reach out. But one of the ways each member here is to serve this church is by growing in your own personal holiness. Because a healthy body needs a healthy thumb, a healthy shoulder, a healthy knee. Working on your own spiritual health will build up the spiritual health of Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. So when's the last time you shared with someone else in this church what God's been teaching you? what he's been doing for you, 
Praise God, I see many of you doing that. I love getting emails from you about things that have struck you or, or things that you have learned. Thank you for sharing those things and not just keeping themselves that, that to yourselves. Thank you for being avenues, not cul-de-sacs of your learning of Jesus. True trust is expressed not only inwardly, but outwardly as well. Well, there's one last part of the psalm we haven't talked about yet. Do you know where it is? It's at the very end. David wraps up by saying, for you will render to a man according to his work. Kind of a bit of a downer after a great psalm, if, you're, if I'm honest. I don't know if you feel that way when you're reading that. But it's a bit of a strange way to end, to our ear, perhaps. If you think about it, David is in the midst of suffering from evil men. And he's reflecting in verses 11 and 12 about how God is powerful and merciful. And so he concludes by thinking about God's justice and judgment. Knowing that all the injustices he's suffering will be made right. By entru- what he's doing is he's entrusting his future. Whatever happens in this moment of hardship, he's entrusting it to his refuge, to God. God will judge it rightly. He will render to every person according to their deeds. And that comforts David. But Christian, as we on this side of the cross look at that verse, I think it says something a little bit differently to us. Or we can apply it a little bit differently. Because ultimately the truth of God's judgment is a comfort for us because it points us to the greater David, to Jesus, to the one who laid aside his high position, right? Look there in verse verse 4. He laid aside his high position. He took the curse of our sin. Jesus declared God as his refuge, no matter what the suffering. And he did it perfectly. Jesus trusted in God when we didn't. He found his fortress in God alone, never in money, never in pleasure, never in achievement, never even in relationship. He found it in God alone. Perhaps you could say his relationship with God alone. And yet, and yet when Jesus should have been rendered according to his work, his perfect life, he was judged for our work, wasn't he? For our sin, for our unrighteousness. God the just condemned his son on the cross so he could set free anyone who would trust in him. And so church, ultimately, God is our refuge because he has rendered to us according to the work of Christ. Praise his name. Because of what Jesus has done, covering our sin with his blood, we know God will be our everlasting fortress, our enduring reward, and he will never, ever forsake us. And that is why we find rest for our souls in him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. There's no place we would rather you be. We're honored that you're here. As you see here, Jesus is the rock. That's the only rock worthy of your trust. I promise you, everything else will eventually give way under the weight of your trust. Jesus never will. He bore the penalty of your sin. 
So that if you repent of your, of your sin and trust in him, you will be saved. If you have any questions about that, we'd love to talk to you about that afterwards. You can talk to me or somebody sitting next to you. And dear brothers and sisters here at Loudoun Valley, as we enter 2020, will you have 2020 vision about where you're going to put your trust? Suffering is going to come. Hardships will come in 366 days next year. It is a leap year, I believe. Where are you you going to run for refuge? What's going to be your safe haven? Maybe take these words as your theme going into 2020. Pour out your heart to God. He is a refuge for us. Let's pray. Lord, we really need you. We are constantly bombarded by doubt, by trial, by fear and anxiety. And we hesitate to put our whole weight on you. Forgive us. This morning, we again in Christ claim you as our refuge. As the one who will shelter us constantly and bring us home assuredly. Lord, we give you this coming year. We give you 2020. We pray that you would give us clear vision of you as our rock so that we will not be shaken. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.